shaping the values of 18 to 22 year olds so that as they go out into their careers and into the world and their relationships, they're thinking about how can societies become more nonviolent, more equitable, um, that that would really help address many of the most pressing problems. This is John Byrne. Welcome to a special edition of AML Conversations for the end of the year in 2018. We've been fortunate throughout the year to have heard from a number of leading experts in AML and financial crime prevention, but I thought I'd end the year on a different note. I was able to sit down with the director of a program at my alma mater, Marquette University. The program is the Center for Peacemaking. I know it's not directly involved in issues that uh, we deal with from a compliance standpoint, but it is clearly a great example of private-public partnerships and how those partnerships can help transform communities and daily lives. Uh, Pat Canelli sat down with me, and we discussed a number of things that the center has been working on. They've been in existence for 10 years, and uh, they've done some local things in the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where Marquette is located, but they've also done some international work as well. I thought it was a uh, fascinating approach to the concept of both uh, nonviolence, but using measurements, using um, legislative action to improve, as I said, uh, the daily lives and the communities, uh, both here in the United States and around the world. There's a number of things that Pat talks about. I just want to mention a couple things up front. One of the programs that he spent some time talking about in the city of Milwaukee is the Near West Side uh, project. And one of the things that Marquette is particularly important in is they were able to, in addition to using and working with other partners in Milwaukee, Harley-Davidson, Aurora Healthcare, a number of others, Miller Coors, uh, to help transform, and it's still evolving, transform the west side of Milwaukee to improve uh, the, da- the daily situation of individuals there from a crime and business perspective. And I think you're going to find all of that particularly interesting. I'll just say that the Center for Peacemaking, it is set up to work with partner organizations. And as I mentioned, uh, they use uh, nonviolent responses to pressing problems. And you'll hear some of the, uh, the clear examples there. So I hope you'll enjoy this. Sit back and enjoy my conversation with Pat Kennelly. So, Pat, uh, 10 years of this Center for Peacemaking, which to me seems a fairly unique program. Tell us a bit about what was the rationale in creating the center, and then I want to ask you about some specific projects um, and some both international and domestic things you folks are working on. So what was the what was the impetus for it here at Marquette? Yeah, John, you know, we're really excited for 10 years because – the Center for Peacemaking, when it began, it was really just a little seed of an idea. There were uh, three people, uh, Terry Wren, his wife Sally Wren, Terry did his Ph.D. at Marquette, and then a uh, theology professor, Mike Duffy. And they were scanning the um, higher education horizon and then looking at what they saw as the biggest need in in shaping the future, really, of the United States. And there was this realization that shaping the values of 18 to 22-year-olds so that as they go out into their careers and into the world and their relationships, they're thinking about 
how can societies become more nonviolent, more equitable, um, that that would really help address many of the most pressing problems. And so um, Terry and Sally Wren approached Marquette and said, you know, what would it look like if we had both an academic component where students were learning theories of peacemaking, peacebuilding, and peacekeeping, but then paired that with a research center that was showing students how in different disciplines, if they're going into law, if they're going into nursing, banking, teaching, social work, what that would look like. And so it was really a challenge, and Marquette stepped up to the plate to be the first Catholic university in the country to offer both a major in peace studies paired with an academic research center working on issues here in Milwaukee, but also around the world. So that's the key, right? You're both trying to do, and we'll talk about the, your park program here in the city. You're trying to help, um, lack of a better term, disadvantaged areas in the city, and the concept of peacemaking can be useful there, which sounds a little esoteric to me, like, I must admit. So when you, th- you hear about peacemaking and nonviolence, you're thinking about Gandhi and things like that, but it's much more practical, right? I mean, it's much, you, have, you folks actually have metrics that look at areas and how things can adjust, whether economically or legally or regulatorily, and based on those adjustments, you can help uh, you can help societies, right? So it's not simply let's teach 18 to 20 year olds that uh, you know a peaceful resolution is the way to go. There's there's actually a lot, as you say, research and metrics and measurements behind all that. Right. Yeah. So I think you're you're hitting both on one of the most common perceptions that people hear nonviolence and they think, okay, that means let's not hit, let's not right. go to war. Gandhi, Dr. King, Dorothy Day, those people. Um, we're saying that peacemaking is much richer and deeper um, than just you know those luminaries. Really, when we're talking about peacemaking, we're talking about three things. At the most basic level is uh, peacekeeping. And, and that's really, like if you think of the United Nations and right. peacekeepers, it's how do you stop people when there's overt physical violence? Mm-hmm. That's just a small... Um, sliver of what peacemaking is. Then there's um, peace building, which is getting at some of those other things that you were mentioning. It's looking really at when there's been conflict, when there's been violence, either physical or structural, how do communities, individuals, nation states um, either heal, reconcile, or maybe that healing and reconciliation isn't part of the formula, but how do they learn to coexist is that the idea of borders and fences and walls and separation um, and you know at the center and this is one of the things I always tell our students nonviolence and peacemaking is a way of looking at the world and solving problems it's not a dogma saying that there's only one way um, in the third area and this is really the the richness of peacemaking and I think why um, as a major and minor at Marquette, it's just exploded over the last um, 10 years, is that it's really looking at how do you build communities so that everyone has at least the opportunity to thrive. And that's where you get into some of those things you mentioned. What are the structural things in society? What are the regulatory things in society? What are, you know, How is the economy focused? How are people getting access to health care? Um, and that that's really the richness of and the complications. 
let, let's go to the specific extent of the of the local park program and the little bit that I know about it. Uh, you're dealing with parts, and Milwaukee's like a lot of major cities. Obviously, there's some very challenging and troubling areas. And the little bit of work that I've done researching what your program is is that it um, again measurements. Uh, how uh, you looked at things like eviction percentages and how to how to turn that over. Also, there's some partnerships that you do locally with businesses. Give us a sense of the park program, because that, that's a really good, I think, specific example of putting into place what you just described. And then we'll talk later about international. Sure. Well, ParkSense for promoting assets, reducing crime. And really, it was a project that grew out of a domestic violence incident. Mm-hmm. About three and a half years ago, Harley-Davidson was interviewing a position at the sea level, and there was a bullet that flew through the conference room, interrupting the interview. And it was a fire alarm that went off across Milwaukee's near west side. Milwaukee's near west side is seven neighborhoods. It's about 30,000 people. It's uh, the second largest area of employment outside of Milwaukee's downtown. And really, when people think of Milwaukee, they're thinking of the near west side. Harley-Davidson, Miller Coors, Aurora Healthcare, Potawatomi, um, most known for their casino, but also their business development corporation. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Marquette University. Um, And so this domestic violence incident really was an awakening both to the neighbors as well as the major employers in the area. How do we turn around a community that's faced a lot of troubles? The background to the near west side is almost your typical Midwest story. It had an area that had a lot of industry to the south, um, and it was also an area with a major population, and then the closure of businesses. There were seven hospitals in the area, two universities in a period of 30 years, six hospitals closed, one of the universities closed, and people know how these stories unfold. The commercial corridor, those small businesses close, and it, it ripples out. And so... In response to this domestic violence incident, we are trying to think of how do you address safety in a way that um, is holistic, that isn't just trying to police or arrest your way out of problems. And we came up with the PARC program, again, promoting assets, reducing crime. Um, and the assets are businesses and structure, all of that? Yeah, businesses, okay. nonprofits, the people, the housing stock, the location and proximity to the central business district, all those things. But what we said is um, everybody has a little piece to the solution. So we have to figure out what are the things big corporations can do? What are the things the banking community can do? And I'll tell you a couple stories of how some of the different banks in the areas have come to the table. What are the things that only the residents can do? What are the things that only the neighborhood associations can do? And then The other component of this is how do you gather information from all these groups? And so what we've done is worked on big data integration. So bringing together health department, property code violations, real estate data, vacancy evictions, um, spending, market analysis, these types of things to help with problem identification and then overlay that with what are the good things happening in this area? Where do people meet? Where do they congregate? How many cars are coming through? And then where are the troubles? 
And one of the things we did is we did an analysis block by block. Where does violence occur? And one of the things we found out right away is that only about 10% of our parcels across seven neighborhoods were responsible for a disproportionate amount of the crime. And so going back to our model, you gather the data, you identify the problem, then we bring together a lot of different partners. And so we've brought together the district attorney, the police department, banks, those major corporations, the schools. And we say, what are the innovative solutions that we think can be done? And then we divide up and say, okay, you're going to take this issue. You're going to take this issue. And what's been remarkable is that in under uh, three years, we've seen 100 full-time jobs created, 26 new businesses open, uh, 37% decrease in overall crime, type 1 crime for the data wonks out there, you know, using the FBI's sure. um, numbers. And what it has been is for Marquette students, a laboratory to use their education with that peacemaking lens. So do they help put the research together, the students? Yeah, they do. Yeah. The students are integrated into every level of this project. It might help to tell two stories. Sure. Um, one is there's a tobacco shop. The tobacco shop, when we sent our political science students out, they knocked on every door in the seven neighborhoods. They asked, where are the problems? The 27th Street tobacco shop showed up number one site of violence. I looked at police calls for service. Number one site where the police were responding. Huge amount of issues. We then asked our business owners in our bid, Where's the biggest source of disorder? Same thing. Um, and so here are poli-sci students got a, an introduction to surveying, community organizing, all of those good things. And then we needed some solutions. And so we realized we had to bring the city attorney in and um, the residents in. And so they went down to the courthouse and they testified. And so then more of our students, especially our uh, sociology students, got to understand, oh, what's the impact of violence on our community? And then what happened next was a judge ordered this business closed. Everyone thought this was a great win. But what happened is shortly after it closed, the business reopened. And we had a lot of neighbors, a lot of students saying, what happened here? I thought it was closed. And what we discovered was there was a loophole in the state law where tobacco licenses couldn't be refused. So if you went down to City Hall, you paid your $100, you're back in business. You had a license, you could sell tobacco. And uh, what we then did is we worked on those structural changes. And so we worked, well, again, with Harley-Davidson. And, and think about this. What, what a lesson this is for students. We brought the nonprofits and the anchors together to say, what could we do? Decided we needed to change the law. Brought Miller Coors, the alcohol industry, and then the healthcare industry with Aurora Advocate, it was Aurora then, to change the law. And then in a partisan climate, got uh, representatives from both, both parties mm -hmm. to come bring the law. And so that's what peacemaking is. It was showing our law students, oh, this is how you address a community problem. You know, this is how you work on structural change. And um, it, it's just been a great example. It's interesting you mentioned that example in the anti-human trafficking space. What we've learned in the financial sector is a similar problem. You would close a uh, massage parlor because it was a front, mm -hmm. and then they would reopen virtually the next week in the same building. 
potentially right. in the same location because the local laws were so weak. So to, to your point, to change that, you have to go to the policymakers and say, there has to be a process here. And it sounds like that, that didn't sound like it, it happened here. So that's, right. a, again, perfect example. And issues like that should be bipartisan. All right. Well, and, and you're reminding me, John, one of the other dimensions of the story is people probably remember the tragedy in San Bernardino. Um, some of the funding that was coming to the folks who uh, committed those acts was actually being from funds that were made at this tobacco shop on 27th Street. And so that then brought this to federal How did that happen? Level. Basically, um, the shop was a front for illicit activity. Okay. And, and so people were pawning things. I and got you. Okay. Weapons and then sending the money out to California. Right. You know, but if it wasn't for some of those compliance and, and the ability to track mm -hmm. the flow of money, none of that would have been known. Well, that's a great example. You said you had another one? Yeah, you know, I think another one, we're thinking of what peacemaking is, is the near west side, for people not familiar with Milwaukee, right next to the downtown. Mm -hmm. um, you can walk downtown, drive two minutes, be there. You have 30,000 people coming into an area every day that has a resident population of 30,000, and then tens of thousands of more just transiting through to get to the downtown area. Traffic major issue. How do you get people to slow down, drive safely, while also making sure traffic moves efficiently? And just earlier this week, we were sitting down, myself, some of the grad students, and we were trying to figure out, how do you address traffic? Some people are saying, just go the enforcement route. But then I saw something happen that was really made me know we were making a difference. Someone said, you know, we're operating in communities that have high rates of incarceration that if and high rates of poverty. When you give tickets, they're often not paid, and it creates a spiral that actually sets our community further back. Right. And so maybe we need to look at the built environment. Are there ways to design the roadways? Are there ways to activate spaces that accomplishes the goal of slowing traffic down, which isn't just writing tickets? And, and that, that's what a peacemaking lens looks like in engineering. That's what it looks like in law enforcement. It's thinking about how do you create communities so that people can thrive. That's interesting because obviously um, as we record this, Washington is potentially considering criminal justice reform because of that problem. The number of people incarcerated in the U.S. has dramatically risen in the past 10, 15, whatever years it's been, and that's not a solution. So to your point dealing with traffic issues from the non-enforcement area, but the way the, the streets are, the lights, all that all that sort of right. stuff that engineers would understand that I certainly don't, but right. I get how you could come up with some measurements that perhaps could reduce traffic flows versus, like you say, just simply um, ticketing more people. Right, and that's what we're trying to do. It's, right. it's that lens of how does somebody approach their work? Let me ask you this. You, you made a couple points that I don't want to gloss over, and that is as you were doing these projects, you talked to, you had students from political science, you had other curriculums. The way the center is set up, uh, tell us a bit about the curriculum from this perspective. So if I want to be part of this, am I majoring in, in some of these other areas and I'm also participating? I mean, how, do, how does that work? Because it sounds like you, you obviously are doing it correctly in that 
political science majors are going to help with organization. Engineers will help with something else. And they're all somehow, somewhat connected to the center, which sounds like a really smart model. Yeah, so one in five, Marquette has a population of 10,000 students. One in five undergrads is connected to the students. The students in the major and minor, they're usually double majoring. So it might be peace studies in nursing, peace studies in education, wow. engineering, pre-law. You can go down the list. Um, but the bulk of the students, they're actually involved in these research projects. You know, they might be the communications student who's working on a project. You know, and again, it's they're gaining some real skills. Hey, if I'm going into strategic communication, how do I do this in a way that solves problems? Or how do I work, you know, if I want to have a career in the nonprofit industry? That might be a great route. I need to also be thinking about how am I working with the elected officials, the sure. the corporations. And so what we're trying to do is provide those experiences for students so that, you know, those on the formal track, they're going to get the introduction to human rights, the um, skills that you need to work in the peacemaking field. But for the bulk of our students, they're going to learn about peacemaking through the programming. This is great. So I want to take a brief break. When we come back, I want to talk about the international aspects of this. The domestic is pretty clear. I think the park example is a, a, you know, a perfect um, replication of uh, what could be potentially done in other cities around the country, it seems to me. And uh, actually, before we go, have you done a, has there been a report of, I don't want to say the successes because I know it's still an ongoing and evolving project, but have you done reports on this that have been communicated beyond the this, this center, not just to students, but to the public? Yeah, you know, and, and this is one of the things that we're really proud. The work here on the Near West Side through Park is being held up as a national model. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, largest funder of health initiatives, um, recently selected myself and the work on the Near West Side as a culture of health leader, one of 40 projects around the nation right. that's showing sustained improvements in improving the health of a large swath of geography and sustaining those over time. The um, Washington Center in D.C. recently uh, recognized this project with their Civic Engagement Award. And anyone who wanted to see and learn more, they could uh, go to nearwestsidemke.org, see the annual reports, see a lot of the all of this is a data-driven initiative, the data, the surveying, and the changes over time. Great. All right, we'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of AML Conversations. This podcast and many other anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act-related posts, podcasts, and case studies can be found on our new website at amlrightsource.com. Our team of AML BSA professionals regularly produces informative content that we hope you find resourceful. Check the AML Right Source website or follow us on LinkedIn for updates. So, Pat, not only um, have there been successes and continue to be successes here locally, and I urge everybody listening to this to take a look at those reports. I think that's going to be uh, a pretty, uh, pretty robust model if you're in any any city situation. Frankly, any any ten, you look at a lot of areas around the around the uh, U.S. that are sort of uh, harmed by manufacturing plants closing and other issues closing, it's obviously, it does impact the, the community. So I think that uh, th this model can be extremely useful. But I want to talk about international. I know that 
you're going to go back on the road. You're going to India. You've been on other places. How how do you and the center interact uh, internationally? And sort of what when you go and do training and teaching, describe that. What's that all about? Yeah. So you know, John, and this really gets to my background. You know, I sort of cut my teeth over and. Syria and Afghanistan working in civil society on nonviolence initiatives. And when we were saying peacekeeping, peacemaking, peace building, right. really on that base level, when there's active conflict, how do people come together? Um, and it's been an area that's been uh, very important to the center throughout the years. So um, some of our bigger projects are um, over in Afghanistan. We've been working with a group called the Afghan Peace Volunteers. This is a civil society NGO group um, that of ordinary Afghans who've been trying to experiment and model, really put together small pilot projects to show ways communities can thrive within Afghanistan without relying on violence as the primary means of conflict resolution. And so these have been things like demonstrating what interethnic living could be small entrepreneurship projects. What I always find fascinating is our international work and our domestic work parallels mm -hmm. one another. So in Afghanistan, how do small-scale industries start up, employ people, and um, in particular, uh, you know, in a society that's dealing with high rates of um, widows, um, helping people transition into the labor market, that's very similar to what we're doing on the Near West Side, working with banks like Waterstone Bank to run Shark Tank-like competitions. And so um, in Afghanistan, we're really just trying to document and understand what civil society groups are doing in response to the situation. Um, one of the projects that I've been really proud of, and our associate director, Chris Jeske, has led this, is... Um, been documenting human rights abuses as well as um, the integrity of elections. So in Honduras and El Salvador, we've been... Yeah, North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> we've been uh, serving as election observers and helping compile reports about the integrity of the elections. Um, are people able to vote? You know, how are votes counted? Um, pretty basic things. Um, and these opportunities, while primarily led by faculty and staff members, occasionally are opportunities for students. And so every January, we teach a course and we take the students to Northeast India. People might know this is a conflict zone um, where uh, the seven states, there's a group that's trying to break off. And what we're doing is we're exposing students to humanitarian organizations that are working in a conflict zone because a large percentage of our students, they go on to work for international organizations, the UN, the ICC, those types of groups. And so this is really just get a flavor of what does it look like day to day to be working in the international development world. And what our students walk away with is it's not just having the values. You need those skills of accounting, project management, supply chain, um, and that's what they're learning. That's a, that's an interesting. It almost seems like you're doing too much. You're covering so many areas, from election integrity to um, you know issues with violence and conflict. Um, uh, students very readily raising their hands and saying they want in. 
I mean, it seems to me that the, the experience you get is invaluable, but you also need the help. Is it just students in your program, or let's say somebody's in political science, they've got no connection with the center, could they potentially be part of this group that goes and deals with election integrity? Right. Yeah. Okay. They, they could. Yeah, and we're fortunate, um, the reception and hunger. I think, you know, for so many young people, this is the time in their life where they're discerning what do they want to do. Sure. And, and they take serious Marquette's tagline of how can they be the difference. And so like this India course, 10 spots, 29 students wow. buying for it. Wow. You know, and um, I think, of course, there's the students want to see the world and travel on the Taj Mahal. But they could do that. There's something where students really are trying to figure out how are they going to use their Marquette experience, their Marquette education sure. to make a difference. So on uh, this India course, the students are coming out, and then what, what's the interaction locally? So it's all these different projects like you just mentioned? Yeah, so the course is taught through a peacemaking lens and a world religions lens. And so um, part of it's helping students develop some cultural competency, so they're looking at each of the world religions. Mm -hmm. And what I'm really challenging them to do is answer the question is, you know, why are Hindus, Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, they're all doing the same type of work. Sure. They're all claiming it under sort of a religious banner. What is it about religion that unites that? And so during the experiences, they're visiting the projects. They're sitting down with the staff at uh, these major organizations. And they're learning not only what the professionals do on a day-to-day -day basis, but they're also seeing how their values shape that work. Or in some cases, people who you know, are non-religious saying, even though I'm not religious, I'm still working on this issue because it's something I care about. Go, let's go back to the, the partnerships that the center has and you have um, with uh, the private sector. So outside of the NGO sector, which is pretty clear, or government organizations like the UN, which is pretty clear. The financial sector, which is sort of where I come from, um, you know, you talked earlier about the investments lo locally. Uh, are financial institutions also, I, I know they are generally, are they interested in the in international component of this, or sort, sort of with the way you work it, it's, it's the domestic work on investments and helping communities, and it really hasn't I don't say it hasn't translated, but it's really not part of what you're doing internationally, even though I know that international institutions do get involved in these sorts of things. Does the center interact with that part of the private sector internationally or just sort of domestically? You know, almost all our interactions and partnerships, or we're really partners working together on an issue um, with financial institutions is domestic. Mm -hmm. But where I see the biggest potential for growth and it's one of the things I always tell our, our students is you know I remember we were trying to move a lot of money to Afghanistan you know and trying to find banks that were comfortable doing that was a major thing and so when I'm talking to our business students and our banking students I'm always saying you know you need to think internationally because of the nature of how money's moved around how companies work and then when I'm talking to our students who really want to go into that nonprofit field, I'm saying, you know, you need to start thinking about what's the role of financial institutions in implementing international development projects. One of the uh, great examples of this was we, uh, people probably remember when uh, Mr. Modi implemented demonetization in India. And 
we happened to arrive the day that went into effect. And so then there was this big question from a lot of the students who hadn't pulled cash out of the bank of, how do I get money? And that was an aha moment of, you know, you need to understand all these multinational actors because someone working on the Brahmaputra River still is talking with the major banks in Delhi and around the world to ensure that they have their resources. You know, it's interesting, and you and I have talked about this offline, um, a separate project that I'm involved in. We actually did a podcast with uh, the head of the Charity and Security Network, and basically that was about the previous issue we mentioned, and that is having financial institutions, whether the U.S. or otherwise, being more comfortable or comfortable with transacting business to areas that are either in or, or tangential to conflict zones, because a big problem has been a, some charities have been uh, fronted by illegal actors, intentionally or unintentionally, and those entities, uh, U.S. financial institutions, again, and others as well, have to be careful because of regulatory criticism if they're considered to be high-risk clients and what are you doing. So we're, we're working on some projects, and uh, this might be actually something that will be helpful to your folks in your world. We're working on a project right now that the end game is, uh, a document, whether it's a manual or a paper we haven't decided, which would say, here's what not-for-profits do, here's how they're regulated, here's their due diligence, here's what banks do, and here's sort of the government a- angle here. And if you understand each other, then there's more opportunity for banks to make a, make a decision that's business-based and not fear-based, right? So the business base is, does it make sense for me as this bank to do business, either my clients want to send money to those conflict areas or we have people that want to be customers, does it make sense to do that? Then I can make a business decision and not think I'm going to have regulators looking over my shoulder and say, if you do that, we may write you up for failure to manage to manage risk. So we're not getting too much back on old issues. This is a clear example of what you guys are doing that transcends just the issue of nonviolence and peacemaking, but it's the practical side of this, right? right? You have to include those private sector entities so that your your folks and people that are trained uh, can do sort of the day-to-day operational things. Yeah, you're describing the exact model. And, you know, what I'm really proud of is I think our students are making those connections, and that's why they're so attractive to employers because – they're able to say, hey, you know, I get the theory, but I've also thought in, about some of these issues. And then they're bringing that into the workplace and uh, manuals like what you're describing. You know, that's how you bridge the divide so business and societies can thrive. Well, um, I really appreciate you sitting down and taking the time. And let me get you out here, get, get you out on this. Um, for someone that doesn't know more than what we've just talked about here, briefly here today. Besides the website, what other places can they go for information? We'll direct them, obviously, to the center site and the reports there. But if people want to learn more about it, whether they be a student that's thinking about, hey, maybe this is a place I want to go, or a employer of any entity that thinks, maybe I want to be more involved in what you folks are doing, what would you recommend? Yeah, I think there's three ways people can connect. Um, The first, of course, is visit the website. The second is literally get connected. Sign up. We put out a bi-weekly newsletter. 
connect to us there. And then also start sending us your material. We're always looking for partnerships and uh, trying to find out what others are doing, and we'd appreciate connecting that way. And then, of course, and everyone wants everyone to do this, like, follow, connect via social media. Yeah, I think uh, you know, the things that you folks send out are amazing, and I know I wanted to end on this, but you know, I sort of go back to your first description of the issue domestically. How receptive has law enforcement been? It seems to me here they have been, but did it take a while to get them to the table? Because you're telling them, hey, we got areas in the city that you know are severely violent and we want to help. Is it more, I'm being facetious here, or rolling the eyes, yeah, sure, whatever, or no, we're looking, we're looking for anything that could help supplement what we're trying to do. Yeah, you know, we're fortunate here in Milwaukee, and one of, this is one of the most innovative things that the center has done through the park initiative we're supporting what's called a community prosecution unit and what this does is it takes a prosecutor a district attorney out of downtown from just processing cases that they're getting from the police department deciding whether to charge and then going into the courtroom to putting them literally in a strip mall outside harley davidson and saying to the community, hey, you're having an issue with that landlord. You know these two people are fighting. You see the drug dealing, the violence, whatever going on. Walk in. Talk to that prosecutor. And what they'll do is they'll call those actors together and find a solution. But they can't do that alone. What also it involves is a, a CPU officer, literally police officers who are working to find non-prosecutorial, what are the place-based, what are the people-based solutions um, and sometimes it does come down to traditional law enforcement strategies. Um, and I think the reason that the police department has really bought into this, as well as the district attorney, and we've also asked the residents how they feel about law enforcement, they seem to really like this, is because it works. We know that violence leads to more violence and you know how situations can escalate as people keep adding fuel to the fire. What we're doing in this again it's that peacemaking and nonviolence lens is it's looking to how do you pro- solve problems that gets at the root causes and i think most law enforcement agencies around the country want to do that because they don't want to respond to a tobacco shop 300 times in a year well you know i, I saw one of the one of your phrases is exploring the power of nonviolence which is so much broader than that phrase sounds just because of everything that we talked about. But I really appreciate, Pat, you sitting down and doing this. The, the center is an, obviously an amazing model. Um, we are going to direct folks, link them to the site, and hopefully they'll sign up for some of the uh, updates that you send around. But I really appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview, and I hope it drives you to learn more about the Center for Peacemaking and their various projects. You can go to Marquette University's website and get information on that. Just type in Center for Peacemaking. Frankly, you can also do it through Google. Just put in the Center for Peacemaking and that information will uh, be readily available. Uh, They obviously are an organization that takes donations, but there's also a lot of uh, partnering that can happen as well. So hopefully, as I said, I've uh, given you some indication of the value that the organization has been doing over the course of 10 years and uh, giving you some interest in uh, you know, maybe passing it on to somebody that you know or learning more about it yourself. I think some of their reports, as uh, 
Pat mentioned are going to be extremely useful for uh, for models uh, in other cities. So I think that's uh, definitely worth your time. So I appreciate taking the time to listen. We're uh, closing down the year 2018. I want to thank the folks at AML Right Source uh, for allowing me to put these uh, interviews on. I'm going to do a number of them again in 2019. I think there's going to be a lot of activity in the AML space in 2019. Obviously, we have a Democratic House, Republican Senate in the United States, so there's going to be a number of hearings that touch on money laundering issues, financial crime issues, uh, and also dealing with AML reform, frankly. I think there will be reform. Where it goes, it's at this point, as anybody's guess, I think there'll actually be some movement to put some additional requirements on those that have financial footprints that, frankly, have not uh, pulled their weight. You think about the art community, uh, the antiquities area. You think about uh, in the real estate space. I believe there's going to be some push to require uh, elements of those entities to look for and report suspicious activity, and we'll be following that very, very closely. In addition, obviously, the hearings on uh, 2018-type scandals uh, and enforcement actions may also be something that's front and center for our community. Uh, but I do appreciate those of you that have uh, been able to listen to some of these uh, interviews, and you've given me some really good feedback. Let me know if there's people you'd like us to interview in 2019. So this is John Byrne thanking everybody for your support thanking the AML community for the great work it continues to do in 2018 and beyond, and we look forward to working with everybody next year. This is John Byrne for AML Conversations and AML Right Source. We will see you next time. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Talk to you soon.